Those with a drive to go have an undeniable calling. They are not content to simply have a transformative idea. They want to create and build. They want to wrestle challenges to the ground and bring solutions to scale. They are makers and doers. They are go-getters. Go-Getters features straight-up conversations with leaders on the forefront of change who are taking action to impact our world, just as Lehigh people have done for more than 150 years. Join us as we explore their challenges, their passions, and what makes them go. Welcome to Go-Getters. I'm here today with Greg Ryman, who's the Vice Provost for Library and Technology Services and also the director of the Center for Innovation and Teaching and Learning. Welcome, Greg. Hey, thanks, John. Pleasure to be here. So, Greg, I think uh, we're living through interesting times, and I think one of the, um, uh, probably the topics that a lot of our listeners would like to hear about is uh, how did we put a thousand classes uh, into a remote setting in four days? Uh, we we did so rapidly. That's how we did it. Now we um, uh, it, when the decision was made and announced that we were going to have to make this transition, um, I think that a lot of legwork had already gone into preparing for it. Uh, it came as a surprise to all of us when we actually had to do it. But I think that there have been broad conversations even just in the weeks leading up to it. You know, people who are in my parallel roles at other universities are starting to anticipate that this might be an, uh, an outcome. So we started thinking about, um, you know, how would we do this? How would we distill down, um, you know, several years worth of, uh, of knowledge about how to teach online, how to use instructional technology tools, how to prepare faculty, how would we distill that down to kind of its essence so people can uh, get up and get going very quickly in ways that are um, manageable for them, but then also helpful for students. So that, I mean, that that's, we, we can go into some more details, but I would just wanted to say, first of all, that the, um, the, initial, the initial moves were, um, where I say well orchestrated, I think, because of some prior planning in advance. Yeah, I remember uh, you know, sitting in my office when we were having a, a meeting on whether or not to uh, go online the first day after spring break. And and the topic I raised about whether we should give a few more days for the transition to happen and sort of remember your response saying, we're ready, let's go. And, uh, and, and it just worked out really well. So maybe you could share uh, a little bit of that uh, that history of uh, how Lehigh you know, positioned itself to be able to adapt as rapidly as we did. Sure, I mean it's it's a long story, so I won't tell it all. But uh, you know, we can look back into the even to the early '90s. There was a recommendation to the president at the time that Lehigh move into distance education. Obviously, the 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 technology changes over time, but a lot of the fundamentals of what it takes um, to pull something like that off um, remain remain very similar. And then, um, you know, even in the that, that was primarily around graduate and professional education in, in those early efforts. And then in the you know, I would say early 2000s is when there was also then a push more for like experimenting what might happen with undergraduates in the online space. And we applied a lot of those lessons in developing a number of online courses um, for undergraduates during the summertime. There was a Mellon funded project called the Clipper Project. We had uh, five undergraduate courses that some incoming students uh, took. And this is in the early 2000s. And uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a very well executed plan that was a combination of faculty work and then um, instructional technology and instructional design. And so just the lessons that we learned from going through that process uh, stick with us to this day. Um, and you know they are you know sort of make sure you have the technical infrastructure in place, 
Make sure you have consultants and advisors who can help faculty think about uh, their teaching in new ways. Uh, have you know faculty members who are willing to uh, take a risk and uh, you know step into a different kind of teaching than what they're what they're accustomed to, and learn how to translate for themselves their own wisdom and experience in the classroom into a different environment. And so it has to be a partnership, right, between the, the designers and the technologists and then the faculty content experts and pedagogy experts. And then you put those two together and you sort of triangulate on, a, on, a, on an outcome. And so that was the model we used for 15 years in working with faculty members on developing summer online courses. So when we had to put together this, we called it an, an academic continuity document, how to make a remote uh, a tr a transition to remote teaching very rapidly. We drew on all that wisdom, I think, so in the beginning, we really focused more on, you know, connecting with students, making sure people are okay and ready to go, and then starting to think about how do you get content in front of students, and then building up towards more interactivity. And then by the third week, we're starting to talk more about assessment and how do you do quizzing and, and papers and things like that online. So it was a little bit of build the airplane while it's flying. Um, so, so I hope we made the right call when we said, let's go. And they, and, uh, um, I think it was, I think, you know, we had workshops in place already at that point, uh, faculty members were already starting to, to think about this. So, um, you know, we had, we had a week after that also to then help some faculty members prepare, um, use, use some of the on-campus facilities for recording. Uh, but then it was about a week after that time, then we were also all sort of off campus as well. And then, then that, that obviously we raised some new challenges and people trying to do this from home. And, uh, you know, a lot of thoughts go out to our faculty members who are trying to pull this off a, re a remarkably heavy lift while also managing the rest of their lives um, in the midst of a pandemic, right? So those, um, those are some, always some new challenges uh, as well. So I think it's been, uh, I think, uh, interesting for all of us. The amount of time I think we're all spending on Zoom right now is uh, uh, you know, hard to have imagined a couple months ago. And then I also think a lot about how we use technology to shape our world and probably for us specifically in education. Uh, I would think you would have an interesting uh, view on this. I mean, your background as a philosophy professor and, and now sort of leading technology and innovation at the university. I'm sort of interested in your thoughts about you know, what's actually going on right now and what of these trends do you think are going to persist past the pandemic? Uh, it's great. It's a great question, and um, I feel like we've. Uh, my, my I was teaching a course this semester on philosophy and technology, if you can believe it. And about uh, three weeks before this happened, I had to be out of town, and so we actually did a remote uh, class with my students. And um, and it, the conversation was about precisely what you said. So how do circumstances? Uh, of our lives and our things we value and things we need to be able to do shape the kind of the technologies that we want, the technologies that we use, and then how in turn do those technologies shape us and our thinking about the world? And so we were we were already posing those questions um, and thinking about what it means to, um, to to teach a class. So after we had this virtual class for one of my Thursday morning classes, um, I posed a question to my students. I said, um, you know, did our class happen? And um, and did Professor Ryman teach? And uh, and so, you know, and it was an interesting observation, right? So there's this action, which was a virtual action of, of teaching online and um, and, you know, got them thinking about what does it really mean to distill down this the verb of to teach or to learn or to have class. And so um, when we all came back after break, my students were sort of stunned that we were in the midst of raising these questions right as this was happening around us. And, uh, and you know, the the convergence of of things was remarkable for me, too, because this was you know, uh, being asked to, in many ways, lead lead this effort in 
doing this well and responsibly for all of our students while also sort of asking these questions theoretically. So I learned a lot from my students as they were going through this experience. Um, how was the different, how were the different technologies affecting them? What was it, what was it making possible? What was it, what was it um, limiting? And so I think, you know, the, the first reaction all of us had was, you know, you, you see this phrase often, we didn't sign up for this. And that's what that's what makes the that's what makes the initial shift online hard uh, because you know in a typical online course you spend a lot of time uh, building up and preparing building norms around what it means to learn online whereas here we had to just really get going from the beginning and there were already norms in place so um, so think about the you know the technologies uh, everything seemed like it was an intrusion right and um, instead of seeing seeming like an enabler but as it, as time went on people began to realize that it wasn't really necessarily a, a, a the distinction to be drawn wasn't necessarily between what we were doing and what we're doing now, but what we were able to do now because of the technology. And so it required invention of new ways, new forms of interactivity. And so it's kind of a feedback loop between you experience this new technology, you, you have your, um, your goals in mind, and then you see what's working, what's not. And so I think the faculty members who had the most success were those who were really receptive to their students' perspectives on what was working, what wasn't, um, creative, and thinking about how they were going to um, get to the most important parts of their teaching, right? Which for many of them meant hearing more from students, interactivity, sometimes collaborative work by students. Um, so that began then to sh shape the faculty members um, thinking about what they were, um, what it means to be teaching, what it means to be having class. And so I think if it, the more we were nimble or flexible around those images, then the technology became our friends, right? It became something that was enabling us as opposed to something that was uh, a mere impediment. So I know there's more aspects to that, to your question than that, but the, I'm, I'm going to dodge the crystal ball question for as long as possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'm, I'm going to, I'll bring out my murky crystal ball later. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Um, so I, so I'm really curious. I mean, I've also found, uh, you know, over the last uh, seven or eight weeks that, that Zoom has enabled me to, to do things I think are really difficult uh, to coordinate across the university, given everyone's busy schedules and, and, and at the same time, the, the piece I worry about the most, and I'm just sort of curious uh, if you've seen people develop strategies around it, and that's uh, how to build a sense of community in, in a virtual world. Right. Yeah, so uh, the, you know, there's a concept called uh, social presence, which is used by educational researchers to discuss exactly this topic. How, how much do students feel connected? Do they feel like they're in a class with other students and sort of present in this space? So this notion of presence is, is, is really important one, right? It's something that we don't necessarily talk about when we're shoulder to shoulder or face to face in a class. You just kind of know it, you just, you just experience it. Um, so when you move to an online environment, it takes some deliberate actions to try to to try to build that sort of thing, right? So, um, you know, sometimes this is just uh, you're taking a step back and and doing uh, check-ins at the start of at the start of a class, right? So you you hear from multiple voices about where people are, or this can be sometimes just um, a, a personal report outs on how how life is going. I know a lot of our faculty members reached out to students for just sort of quick check-in. You know, you know, think about in Zoom. Even if you start your class out by saying, you know, everybody post in the chat room, you know, one word about how you're feeling today, right? Or one word or one sentence about your reaction to the assignment. So it can be both sort of, you know, an emotional connection, interpersonal connection, but it can also right shift very quickly into the into the content. So if you're doing things that that sort of require that responsiveness and interactivity, that's where the yeah, that's where your social presence I think starts to elevate. The more things are just one way, and and a student is just staring at a screen in a passive modality, it's very easy. You kind of stay in your own space, right? Game designers know this. The more there's interactivity 
and interpersonal interaction, the more you sort of get drawn into the virtual space of that game. And the same thing's true in a classroom. There's more that there's, the more I'm, I'm asked to respond to um, a meaningful question, or the more I'm asked to partner with somebody and solve a problem together, suddenly I forget that I'm sitting at my desk or in my basement or in the attic office or wherever I might be. And the more I'm in this new kind of space with with those I'm I'm working with, and the world kind of fades away around you, right? And you're in a, you're in a new virtual virtual classroom, really. So those moments early on, and I just, those are just a few examples, but it's you know just to highlight, it's it's about responsiveness. Right, inviting responsiveness and being responsive. It's about interactivity, about collaboration. Let's take a short break. How can artificial intelligence be used to combat human trafficking? What will future finance jobs look like? How do algorithms improve efficiency? If you're looking for insight on current hot topics or just love to learn, join a Mountain Talk. In these 30-minute video chats brought to you by Alumni Relations, a Lehigh expert shares new discoveries and perspectives on challenges facing our world today. Listen live or on demand. Visit gocampaign.lehigh.edu slash engage. Now's the time to join Lehigh's virtual alumni book club. Join hundreds of fellow alumni to explore discussion-worthy books throughout the year in an easy and engaging online forum. To sign up, Visit gocampaign.lehigh.edu slash engage. We're back with Greg Ryman. So I have a question that uh, probably um, pertains more to the hat you wear for the Center for Innovation uh, in Teaching and Learning. So uh, I, I think college campuses experience uh, disruptive events uh, periodically, and they then go through some period of recovery around that event, then largely return to what they were before that event. And what I'm really curious about is I think the, while uh, our disruption has been caused by the pandemic, the way it has played out for us is, is, a, is a disruption by technology or an embracing of a new way uh, of content delivery. And I'm sort of curious in your thoughts that uh, in the post-pandemic world, do you think that disruption was temporary or are there a set of permanent changes that you envision will happen in uh, teaching and learning as a result of uh, the how technology is needed to be embraced in this period? And that's a, that's a very common experience we've had when we've helped someone develop in the past a summer online course is that they always come out in the fall or the next spring when they teach that class again is different. Um, two reasons. One, because they have these tools that are available to them, which they oftentimes figure ways to integrate into their face-to-face -face class. Um, and um, secondly, because as I mentioned earlier, you had to rethink a lot of a lot of elements of teaching that uh, you may not have ever thought explicitly about before. They just happened, or you, just because of how you went through your own education, that's just what you did. But in, in an online space, you have to think about how to deliberately or intentionally recreate those things. So then when you come out the other side in, in your own course, then you're ready to, um, you're ready to, again, be much more deliberative in both the face-to-face -face and the online interactive elements that you, that you create. And that's, again, we're, that's that coming back to that theme of partnership, right? We, we, we can be experts in instructional design, instructional technology, how to, how to fundamentally build a course. But at the end of the day, you, it's got to be a blend of that combined with the faculty content and pedagogical content knowledge in their space that allows them to make that class effective. And so more people doing that kind of work, that, that's, that's exciting to me. And I think that, you know, we could probably predict a few of the things that will stick 
and a few of the things that won't. Um, but um, but what's but what again? What's exciting that on the other side, there's going to be more of that happening um, with more experience and and again more informed choices. Well, I, I personally want to acknowledge I think the that you and and your staff in the center instill confidence in faculty who are experiencing this for the first time. So, uh, so I'm really curious. I, I sort of view uh, Zoom as a 2D technology, right? I mean, just on my flat panel. So I'm, uh, I'm really uh, curious whether you're excited about tools like uh, augmented reality or virtual reality in sort of advancing um, education and learning. Absolutely, and, and this is a space we've been we've been experimental in for for a while, about 10, 15 years now. We've been sort of uh, looking at uh, gradually as this, as a space kind of gradually emerges. You know, about a decade ago, we were um, we were active in uh, in Second Life, if you recall this as a as an early virtual reality game um, or, or virtual reality space, not a game. Uh, uh, Second Life users would be upset if I called it a game, but it's a it's a space. We had Lehigh built structures in that space, and we were experimenting. We had uh, chemistry faculty, art and architecture faculty. Um, English faculty, philosophy faculty, teaching in this space. And again, in this experimental modality of like, what can be made possible with these kind of avatars working in a, in a simulated 3D space? Um, and again, some some good, some bad, some indifferent. Um, but since then, things have just really taken off. And um, we have a visualization lab in the CITL and a v VR, AR space. Um, most, most of the things we've been doing so far have been in collaboration with faculty members who are um, either looking to get students to have an experience that would be very difficult to get to, right? Um, because of travel or, or historical, right? Impossibility, right? So recreations of things. So, um, or, but also sometimes uh, it's about identity development as well. We have faculty members doing research, research on race, race and racism. And there's a big uh, uh, movement to use virtual reality to help us sort of experience what it's like to be someone other than, than our own, um, our own identity. So, um, so we, we've been moving into that space. Um, and it's, it is exciting because again, coming back to this feeling of presence, um, VR done well, sort of pulls you out of your uh, physical environs and moves you into a new space where you can have a very different kind of interactivity with objects, um, with events, with other people. And um, yeah, so I think when, you know, if, if you can imagine a situation where we all had this p potential and for zoom instead of just sitting there with the uh with the grid we were actually sort of sitting in a in a seminar room right it's a very different kind of um kind of experience right what what would that it would feel more like a regular meeting and you'd probably feel more transported from your existing space into an into a new space um but like um yeah i, I still remember one of our art, art architecture and design faculty members when we first started thinking about building in second life said you know, all all the things that we built were just replicas of of, of the Lehigh campus, and said, you know, we have we have all we we don't have these limitations. Why are we rebuilding these limitations in this virtual space? And so that's another thing that's exciting. So, do we want to just recreate virtual spaces that uh, are replicas of existing spaces, or can we can we go one better? And then, what what would one better look like? You know, how do, how do you combine some of the, you know, some of the helpful features of of Zoom, um, where maybe. You know, one of the things I like about Zoom is that everybody's sort of equidistant from each other, right? You know, everybody in the classroom or in a meeting is sort of on on a little bit more of a level playing field. You can, you know, there's no back of the room, right? Um, and so you can see more people close up and, and with a little imagination and attention, you can feel like you're very close to the people you're talking to. So is there a way to, you know, if you 
if you now three make that into a 3D space, you might replicate, you might lose some of that. But is there a way to to use the 3D modeling to do something new and different in that space? So we're just now moving into a space where we want to be able to have the expertise to um, create more of these uh, VR environments, and um, and so we're actually just you know it's on pause now, but we're building a, a, a VR production lab in the library. Um, so once we get back to campus, we'll be able to do more of that. But we're actively trying to figure out how um, that those those kinds of experiments might work. And um, and a, our remote environment might allow us to do some experimentation with a, a VR classroom, right? Or um, or at least to give our students those uh, VR experiences um, uh, like we were doing, like I mentioned earlier, just uh, how to see things, experience things that you might not be able to otherwise visit, uh, experience in the sort of in the 2D realm. So, Greg, I think we've gotten to the uh, point in our podcast where I give you a series of rapid-fire questions. And, all right, all right. Uh, <laughs> and and, and uh, you get to say whatever's on your mind. So, uh, as a philosopher, uh, any motto or philosophy that you embrace? Oh, boy. Um, that, that's a good one. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a great one from... Um, from Chinese Taoism that says Wei Wu Wei, which means uh, do non-doing, which is a, which is I think in in stressful times is something something helpful to keep in mind to uh, to keep active but not to um, overthink or overstress in the in the world and the actions that you're that you're uh, that you're having to take. Well, that's excellent advice for today. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Linderman or Fairchild Martindale. Oh, it depends on what I'm trying to do. If I want to sit quietly and read a book in a beautiful, comfy couch, I will go to I will go to Linderman. Um, if I'm trying to uh, work and I, I want to collaborate with some other colleagues or, or uh, play with new technologies, I tend to do that more in Fairchild Martindale. So Mac or PC? I'm a Mac user. <laughs> What's the last book you read? Oh, the last book that I read. Um, I read a book called The Internet of Us by Michael Lynch. It's a book that I read together with this class. I highly recommend it. It, it explores many of the questions we were just talking about, how um, how the internet is changing, how we think about knowledge and, and social identity. So are you an early bird or a night owl? Both, John, both. What you were pre-pandemic, but uh, so- I um, think I, I think I, I, if given my given my choices, I, I'd be more of a night owl. Um, sometimes life constraints have me getting up early. So, yeah. so what's your favorite virtual Zoom background? I, you know, I, I've, I've, I, I, I'm not a fan of the virtual Zoom background, John. I, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I've been pretty boring in that front, though. I think that maybe the favorite thing I did was just do a screenshot of someone else's virtual Zoom background and then use that as my own, so it looked like I was sitting in their space. So a little bit of uh, that was a little bit of a a Zoom deep fake that I engaged in, but um, uh, I'm not. Maybe I shouldn't be recommending that to others. But uh, I, I tend to, I tend to just uh, like like a plain background. Or today I'm sitting by a fireplace. Yeah, I, I do too. But I've enjoyed at meetings watching people compete for the best uh, virtual background. It seems to be the uh, the way people are exercising competition early in I, our it, in our. It it is fun to see. So maybe I'll maybe I'll amend my answer. I haven't used it, but the ones I like to see, I like the people who have the Linderman uh, Linderman Library background. That that always evokes a positive feeling in me. So, so you're quarantined at home with your family. So uh, do you have any advice for other parents that are quarantined with theirs? 
Oh, that's a, that's a good one. So I, I've got four at home. I've got a college age uh, son, a high school age son, a middle school daughter and a third grade son. So um, yeah, a lot of communication and coordination and make sure you have adequate bandwidth, I think would be would be one one thing that's very crucial. Um, I think the more we the more we can build a schedule for ourselves. You know, one thing we hear from many folks is that uh, the days tend to blend together. So I think another another element that I think I may have learned from studying philosophy is how to intentionally build some rituals into your life to try to uh, give a pattern to your days and a pattern to the flow of days and weeks. And so I recommend building in some kind of rich family rituals around um, checking in both you know emotionally, but also checking in about um, what the day's work looks like, or how the day's work went, and I think some of those uh, some of those habits can can uh, help us all sort of uh, stay together and, and keep supporting each other and, and know where we all sit. So I think for my final question, I'll bring out my murky crystal ball again. <laughs> um, will the next Leloff game be attended virtually or in person? Oh. That uh, I, I, I'm going to hedge and say yes. I think we're going to be moving into a, into a hybrid environment where uh, where many many more of our things will be uh, yes both um, answers because we're going to need to do things where we uh, create possibilities for those folks who can be nearby, and we create possibilities for those folks who who for one reason or another cannot, and we want them both to be uh, great experiences. So uh, the next one that's played, uh, I'm 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 hoping that the players themselves can be. Uh, can be physical. That be, we haven't figured that one out, um, but I'm sure that the uh, the audience and and uh, those in the spectators will be uh, some some nearby and some farther away. Greg, I want to thank you for uh, joining us today at Go Getters. I much appreciate the time. I appreciate the invitation, John. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This has been Go Getters, a podcast from Lehigh University, hosted by President John Simon. Special thanks to today's guest. Greg Ryman, Vice President for Library and Technology Services. Thanks also to sound engineer James Plotkin, co-producers Aaron Firestone and Janet Norwood, and the Lehigh University Office of Development and Alumni Relations. Go inside the episode at lehigh.edu backslash go-getters to learn more about remote learning, explore Lehigh's libraries, and have some digital puzzle fun. Don't forget to subscribe to Go-Getters on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. And take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so other listeners can find us.